With all those said, uh, turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Ephesians chapter 1. It's been great to worship the Lord, and even as I was singing songs this morning, I thought, I think the Lord's already preaching to some people today. So I don't know if one of the songs that we sang today is something you needed to hear. Maybe that first one, as I thought about that, maybe there's a sin today that's your tomb. I want you to know today that God can get you out of that tomb. All right, He can set you free. He give you new life. So maybe you were done that. But last week, as we uh, you know, look here at Ephesians, we're making our way through this series called Grace Made Visible. And last week, we looked at verses 3 through 14, which, you've, if you remember, was one verse in the original Greek language, just one sentence. That's all that was, one sentence in the Greek language. And in that, what Paul was doing was giving praise to God for all that he's done and giving us our foundation. As he moves on today, though, I don't even know if it's a separate, maybe it's really a part, but what, what Paul does here is he begins to pray. And he offers up a prayer for uh, the believers, all right? And as we look at that, it's going to remind us of several things. First observation I'm going to say is this. It's going to remind us that prayer is something that's very important to our life. Paul recognized that, and he spent several verses here praying for the church, and it should be something that we do regularly in life. And as I think about that, though, let's think about, we know we need to pray, but don't we often struggle to pray? Let's just be honest, right? There, there's times we go and we offer up our simple prayer at mealtime because we feel like we, we don't want to choke on our food, so God bless me, right, as we eat this food because I don't want to choke, and so we'll do that. There's many times we offer up our emergency prayers to God in a moment of difficulty. We say, God, help me, right? And we offer those up. We might mumble a quick prayer before we go to bed at night, or maybe when we get up out of bed in the morning, we mumble something because we think we need to start our day with prayer. And we do those things. And even though we know we need to pray, we, we, we ha- find it hard. And even when we do try to find an intense time of prayer, sometimes we find it hard to focus or stay awake, Right? Yeah, that's right. I'm not in it alone, am I? Maybe it's just me, right? But we struggle with these things. Yet prayer is so important in our lives, and Paul's going to demonstrate the importance in these next verses. Now, not only does Paul demonstrate his importance, he even really gives us a little model of praying. He starts with a time of thanksgiving. It's followed by a time of intercession and concludes with a declaration of the power behind our prayers. He describes the Lord's greatness. Now, I'm not going to break that down today, but hopefully as you look at the text, if you want, go back, break it down on your own and see here's a model of how we can pray. Uh, However, what we do want to do this morning is look closely at why and what Paul prayed. Look at verse 15 this morning in 16. Paul says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. Now, in reading this, Paul's motivation to prayer is this, the believer's faith. You see, last week, we really looked at what Paul laid out as the foundation of our faith. And as he moves into this prayer, he's motivated in this case to pray because those he's writing to in Ephesus had demonstrated a genuine faith. Now, I think we should point out that the faith that these believers had that Paul was talking about was not their initial faith. Okay, what I mean by that is this. Paul had spent much time with the Ephesians, and he had seen a time in his life for these believers. He had been there for many of them when they had placed their faith in Jesus. He knew that they had repented of their sin, and they had received Jesus as their Savior. And even though Paul was thankful for that initial faith, that is not the faith he was praising here. What he was praising here was the fact that their faith was a faith that was growing and active. See, this reality is best seen when he speaks of their love toward all the saints. 
What he had heard about and saw in these believers was a faith that wasn't just a, a moment in time faith, right, where they prayed a simple prayer, but it was a faith that was a faith that was that directed every aspect of their life. It was a faith that was active and it was a faith that was ongoing. It, it is not something, it wasn't something that was in the past or it was, wasn't something that was stagnant, right? This was a faithful, active faith, all right? I, I want to point this out because too often in our day, people want to claim a faith. They even want to undertake some acts of faith, such as baptism, and then that's it. They never seek to grow in their faith. They never seek to act on their faith. They simply want to rest and claim a faith. They want to claim this faith because it provides for them a get-out-of-hell-free card and a ticket to heaven, all right? That's what it does for them. But Paul knew that these Ephesians not only claimed a faith, but they were seeking to live out their faith. And because of their act of faith, it gave him a reason to pause. And so what Paul did is would Paul and give thanks as he said, every time I pray, I'm thankful for you. Now, I find that statement by Paul telling because those people that make it into your prayer all the time, aren't they special people to you? Right? Think, think about it. Who are the people that always are in your prayers? I bet mostly it's your family, right? Your family makes it every day. Why? Because they are the ones that are the closest to you. And so every day you're going to pray for your family. Or maybe you've got some very close friends that happen to make it every day. You see, for Paul, these Ephesians made it into his prayers constantly because of their act of faith, a faith that was clearly making a difference for them and others in the world. Indeed, these were faithful believers. Now, as I consider these words, it is a reminder to all of us to do this, to seek to have a growing and active faith. Be sure that the faith for you is more than just a moment that you had in the past, but that it is a thing that defines each day and drives each day of your life. A faith that affects every day of your life, hear me, that's what is a true faith, right? Now, to help us have this growing faith and active faith that Paul was taking notice of, we can look at the words of Paul's prayer and what he prayed on behalf of these believers. And before we look at these words, let's consider the prayers that we typically pray for us. I mean, when you pray for someone, what do you typically pray? For health. Isn't that the number one? Mostly our prayers, when we pray, we're praying for someone who is sick. If not that, number two is probably this. We're praying for somebody who, who's in a difficult situation. We're praying that they would get out of that. We might be praying, for example, for their financial difficulties or maybe that they would find a job. That, that's what we typically pray for. We pray for people who are having some kind of difficult circumstance in their life and we're asking God to help them. That's what we do, right? All right, say amen. That's right, right? We do, all right? Now, it is, but look at Paul's prayer because it's different than our typical prayers. Look at what the content of Paul's prayer is. Look, look back, starting at verse 17, as Paul talks about why he is praying and why he is praying for these believers, he says that the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know that what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, now I hope you notice what Paul prayed for them. It didn't sound anything like what our typical prayers sound like. He, he didn't pray for their physical healing or their rescue from a trouble, all of that. 
And in actuality, the content of his prayer was really that we would know God better, that they would know God better. That's a good prayer. In fact, I must read verse 17 again. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of what? Of him. He wanted God to work to give the believers a deeper knowledge of him. Now, here's why this is an important prayer. There's a huge difference between having a knowledge about God and knowing God. I saw an article this week that says within 10 years, the world might have and see its first trillionaire. And in case you're wondering, it's not going to be me. (laughs) Just want that clear, right? It's not going to be me. Whether that trillionaire will be Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett or some other, it's debated because surely even these names that I mentioned, they're far away from that number at this point in their life. They have billions and billions, but they don't have trillions yet, all right? Though they're making there. But here's what I know. There's a huge difference in a person knowing about one of these people and knowing one of these people. Here's what I can do. I can do a Google search and I can tell you a lot about Elon Musk. I can tell you that he has primary ownership in Tesla and SpaceX. I can tell you he was born into a wealthy family in South Africa. I can tell you that he earned a degree from the University of Pennsylvania. I could go on and list many facts about him and his life. However, just because I can know those things about him does not mean I really know him. In fact, I guarantee you, if I were to try and call him, all right, and if I were to ask him for a gift of money to say, hey, I just need a little money. Can you give it to me? I bet he would laugh and say, no way. I don't know you. Right? If I tried to call and even ask for advice, he'd say, who are you? I don't have time for you. I'm working on my Tesla, right? You got to hang on the phone. I ain't got time for you. But here's what I bet. I bet if I knew him intimately and personally and I had a financial need, I could go into him and say, I'm I'm in a rough spot. Could you give me a little bit? And he would gladly and freely give it because he could probably give me thousands and not even miss them, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? And if I needed advice, I bet I could call him up and say, yeah, I, I would gladly talk to you because folks, listen, there's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. And what Paul was saying to these believers is, listen, I, I want you to know God more. And I know the analogy is not perfect, but this truth is the same. Knowing about God is much different than knowing the facts about him. And what Paul prayed for these Ephesians is that they would have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowing God. Now, listen, if I try to explain what that means quickly and simply, uh, think about wisdom as this. It's the ability to take deep theological truths about God and apply them to everyday situations. Wisdom to apply his omniscience and to life and realize that he knows all things. And so that when you face an uncertain or difficult circumstance, you can trust that God knows what he's doing, even if you don't. It is having the wisdom to apply God's grace to life so that when you're dealing with someone who needs to be shown grace, you are able to do what pleases God. It is the wisdom to apply his love, his mercy, his omnipotence, his justice, and more to everyday life. Wisdom is when faith moves from the facts I know to when the faith I have helps me know what to do. Okay? Paul also spoke about revelation, where wisdom is the ability to know what to do. Revelation is the ability to see what God is doing. 
Think about that. Revelation is the ability to see fully who God is so that I understand his purposes in the world and that he is at work. Chuck Swindoll stated it as the ability to grasp the meaning of God's truths so that we comprehend his perspective on life and circumstances. Think of it in terms of this is when you say, oh, I see what God's doing. Have you ever done that? If not, I pray soon you can look and say, oh, I see what God is up to. You see, when you have both wisdom and revelation there, when they're present in your life, here's what it leads. It leads to a deeper relationship with God where you know him more, and it helps you to deal with life better. You don't wander through life aimlessly, but instead you go through life with a greater sense of purpose and peace, and you trust all things to God. Because you see, when you have wisdom to apply your faith to life, you gain purpose. And when you have revelation to see what God is doing, you gain peace. You get that? Wisdom to know what to do, it's purpose, and that revelation is to see what God is doing and have peace. Now, as Paul prays for this wisdom and revelation, look at, at that prayer. He concludes it in verse 18. He says, or includes in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, what this phrase is talking about is having the innermost of your being enlightened to the things of God. Now, I would say in one sense, this is truly taking your faith and moving it out of the realm of intellect and moving it into the realm of your emotion. For you see, when a person's heart is enlightened to the things of God fully, there becomes a greater sense of wanting to praise and worship God. And I'm going to go ahead and say this, all right? There are definitely times when I desire people to be more engaged with God in their inner self so that they're moved emotionally. Why, you ask? Well, let me tell you why. This is my desire. Because we should be more excited about what God has done and is doing than we are about how well our sports team is doing or how well our favorite singer is performing. And yet, when we come to worship, people often remain motionless and unmoved while at their games or concerts, they are engaged and participating. I hope you understand what I'm saying here because it's hard to believe that if a believer is truly enlightened to the things of God and what is done in their lives personally, that, that what we could do is, is just generally go through worship and it'd be boring and, and mo- emotionless. All right, Robbie, you know, uh, Robbie walked in this morning while I was singing a song. He says, preacher, dancing in church. I said, yeah, maybe I will dance. That's right. <laughs> because I've got a God who is worthy of my worship. And if it means I got to dance before him, let, let's dance right? But too often what we do is we come in church and we sit and we just want to be, okay, what time is it? This preacher's going a little long today, right? That song, I'm not sure I like it today, right? No, our, our God is more than that. He is worthy of our emotion. He is worthy. And Paul's saying, I want you to be enlightened to how great God is, because if you're touched in your heart, you're going to be moved by God. You understand? That's what he was praying for. I, I, like Paul, pray that believers would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Paul, though, wasn't just looking for believers to have an emotional experience. He, wasn't, he was looking for much more and desiring much more for these believers. N- notice the reason he wanted these believers to experience this wisdom, this revelation and enlightenment. Look back at verse 18. He says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? There are three things that he wanted these believers to grasp through wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment. The first one is this, the hope to which they had been called, okay? Uh, you know, Luke's already kind of set the stage great here for me this morning. He, I think he stole some of my material, all right? But if you look back at what Paul shared last week, we can see that Jesus, what Jesus did is give us a foundation for hope. In fact, Paul 
mentioned to the Ephesians about being the first to hope in Christ. Hope indeed is a powerful thing, is it not? I did a little research this week, and as I did this research, I found at least 10 things that experts believe hope helps us with or helps us to have. They include these, motivation, resilience, emotional well-being, health benefits, relationships, creativity, and innovation, goal achievement, a coping mechanism, optimism for the future, community, and societal impact. That's a lot of different things, is it not? According to the experts, hope helps us with all of those things. But as I thought about that list and the research, here's something that I realized, okay? As I thought about that list, the hope that they're talking about has nothing to do with the hope that Paul is talking about, okay? Most of the time, as Luke has already said, when we talk about hope, we're not speaking about a sure thing, but just something that's a possibility. Like last Sunday, when I was preaching to you, I was hopeful that my Dallas Cowboys would win a playoff game. I was hopeful, but they didn't. It wasn't a sure thing. In fact, probably if you'd have asked me when I left, I'd said they're probably not going to win, right? And sure enough, they didn't, right? That's a hope, it's an expectation. In fact, if I were to even ask you, what do you think about this coming week in your life? And you might say something, well, I hope it's going to be a good week. While in the back of your mind thinking, I don't really expect it to be, right? We, we use that word hope often pertaining more to something we are wishing for versus something that we really believe will happen. And when Paul is wanting us to know the hope to which God has called us, he is not talking about a wish. He is speaking about a, a certainty, What God has promised to believers gives us something to look forward to at all times and gives us a certainty to hold on to. The hope that gives us, you know, the the hope that that God gives us is something that changes everything completely in our life, all right? It changes our lives completely. The The theologian John Stott put it this way. It was a call to an altogether new life in which we know, love, obey, and serve Christ, enjoy fellowship with him and each other, and look beyond our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed. Paul's prayer is that they would know all that God has promised us so fully that we would have a hope that is beyond the moment, that we can look and say we have hope and that the hope we have is not dependent upon how the week goes or what we experience because we know what God, that, that God has everything under control and what is waiting for me is great. You understand that? He says, I, I want you to know that. Now, with that in mind, it makes sense that Paul would then go on to say the second thing he wants us to grasp, which is the riches of God's glorious inheritance. We looked at this some last week, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much today, but we must never forget as believers that God has promised us a great inheritance. This inheritance calls us to look to the future and know that there is something great awaiting us. And since the scriptures indicate in a way that what is waiting is far greater than we can imagine, I'm not going to try and explain it in its fullness. Our inability to fully know what this inheritance is going to be like is probably why Paul was praying that God would help us understand the riches that await. He desired that we would at least be able to understand as much as possible because there are things that we can know, such as one day we will see God and Christ and we will be like Christ in his glory with a glorified body and a perfected character. Those things are told in scriptures and it's good for us to know. And though we most likely would not fully be able to grasp all that is waiting, here's what I'm going to say. It's not wrong for us to think about it. What is awaiting? What is it going to be? In fact, there's this sense that we're to be motivated to live for God in light of what is waiting. We should have a greater love for God and what he has promised us than we have for the things of the world. 
Okay? If that were not so, why would the Scriptures tell us to store up treasures in heaven, all right, rather than treasures on earth? Okay? If we can get some measure of understanding or grasp of what this glorious inheritance is like, then we have a great motivation to live for God because we long for what God has waiting for us, and I want to please the one who is prepared to give me such a great gift. But then Paul mentions one other thing he wants us to grasp. I want you to catch this. The immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us. I do want to read verse 19 again. Look at what it says. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? This statement and desire that Paul had for these believers is a big one. Paul knew that what was important for these believers is to understand God's power in their lives. In fact, the Greek word for power is, is the word dynamaios. It's the, the root word was where we get our word dynamite, power, right? You've probably heard that before. Paul definitely wanted these believers and us to understand something of the greatness of God's power. Not only God's power, but his immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us. You see, God's power in our life is an important thing. And in fact, in recent years, here's what's happened. I've, I've gotten into a little woodworking. Some of y'all know that, right? And as I do this woodworking, here's something that I know. I mean, whether it's remodeling my kids' houses or doing something out in the shop, I like power tools. <laughs> and you know why I like power tools? All right. It, it, it's because I like my, my tools to be powered by something other than me. In fact, if you look up the definition of power tool, which I did this week, the definition is a tool that is actuated by an additional power source and mechanism other than the solely manual labor used with hand tools. In the case of that definition, and you ask what is actuated, actuated means calls to operate. All right. So when Paul's talking about us knowing the greatness of God's power towards us, he wants us to know God's ability to cause us to operate. He not only wants us to know God's ability to work in us, but the greatness of that power. You know, on my, my cordless tools, I, I, don't know on the bar, I don't know if all of you had this, on my, on my batteries, there's a little button that I can push. And when I push that button, it tells me how charged my battery is. Got, some of y'all got that right? If it's got one light, I better be plugging that thing in, right? Because it's about, about to die on me. If it's got four, I'm good to go, right? Well, well here's the good news. That, that's on my batteries, but, but you, want, you know some good news? God's power never runs out. The good news about God's work in us and his power in our life, it's endless and it is limitless. Now, before we look more closely at what Paul writes here, let me simply ask, do, do you recognize God's power at work in your life? I want to ask that because I think even Christians often go through life failing to recognize how God is at work in the world and in their lives. I wanted to ask that question first because if you cannot immediately answer yes to recognizing God's power in your life, then you clearly need to hear what Paul writes. You need to begin to recognize God's power, and then for those who say yes, I want you to make sure you understand the fullness of his power. And as Paul addresses this immeasurable power, he first points us to resurrection power. Look at verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Here is something that we all recognize, that we are all powerless over death, right? Not a single person here can avoid it. We may try to delay it, but in reality, death can come to any of us at any time, and we'd be powerless to stop it. We consider death to be our enemy, right? However, God has done what we cannot do, 
He conquered death and raised Jesus from the dead. He first kept Jesus from seeing decay, but then he didn't just reverse the process of death. He raised Jesus to a transcendent life. It was an altogether new life, as John Stott put it. It was immortal, glorious, and free. The disciples got to see a taste of his new life as he appeared among them after his resurrection. Even one time, this one's always amazed me, when he appeared in their midst, even though the doors were locked. I could... That'd be cool if I could have a, like that, right? A life where even if the doors were locked, it didn't matter. I'm getting in the room anyway, right? Be, be kind of cool. The power that God displayed in Jesus' resurrection is an amazing thing. And when you think about God's power, what, what do you think about? I mean, what, what do you think about this morning? Do you think about how great God is that he could create the world and the universe? Right? I, I can tell you there are plenty of things in creation to look at and say, man, if God can create that, man, he is surely powerful. However, I like what J.D. Greer stated when he said this, resurrection is the greatest possible power imaginable because it is the power to bring life out of death. Catch this. Creation brings life out of nothing, which is pretty impressive. But resurrection is bringing life out of death, which is even greater because death is not a neutral power. Death is a corrosive, destructive, negative power. Now, I don't know what that says to you, but let's remember that there was a time when we were all dead in our sins and trespasses. For those who've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, here's what you've experienced. You've been brought from death to life. Hear me, right? Listen. You weren't just changed. You weren't just changed. Some of us would do that. Oh, I just had a change in life. No, no. If you came to know Christ, you were brought from death to life. That's a big deal. Right? Jesus said as much when he said these in John 5. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You see, if you're a believer, you know what it's like to be dead in your sin, but to be brought to life in Jesus Christ. You know what it is to receive eternal life. And Paul wants believers, though, to understand the fullness of the power and understand how God can bring life from death. Many people have experienced this morning death in their emotions. And so because of that, they are compulsive or jealous or angry or selfish or controlling, just to name a few. And what God's resurrection power can do is bring life to you so that those emotions change and compulsion becomes control, jealousy becomes trust, anger becomes love, selfish becomes generous, controlling becomes helping, and so much more. You see, God can bring life to broken relationships, to broken dreams, and to broken lives. Where death may have come from addictions, God can restore life. No matter how death has come to you, all right, wherever death may exist, God's resurrection power can resurrect whatever is dead in your life. All right, you, you, that, and it's a powerful thing. But let's remember this. It's his power and not yours. This resurrection power is the pinnacle of God's power. But as Paul further elaborates on what this resurrection power does, we also see that it's a ruling power. You see, after Jesus was resurrected, we see that God resurrected Jesus in Ephesians 1.20 and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Get this, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he was seated in a place of authority at the right hand of the Father. In that place of authority, he is above all things. I will even say this. You ready? 
I'll get some of you this morning on this one, right? No matter who is elected in this next year as a president of the United States, the one who is really in ruler is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' ruling power is farther greater than we can imagine. I even think about this. Luke, Luke and Nicole, some of y'all know, recently, recently Luke and Nicole uh, sold their home and they, they've moved into a house that they're renting right now. And they moved into a house that has a history of being haunted. I say history, let me say reputation of being haunted, right? Because if you were to ask me, do I believe in hauntings? I would have to say, not in the type that people believe in, all right? I don't believe in ghosts and those sort of things. I believe in spiritual forces that are working in the world that I do not understand. I, I just don't believe that there are ghosts, as many like to believe, or haunting from those people in the past, okay? I don't believe in that. However, th- th- that's not really even relevant to my point, but what I, what I want you to understand is this. There are spiritual forces that work in the world, but you ready for this? But a believer should not fear any of those because Jesus has been seated at the right hand of the Father. He is in the seat of authority and he is far greater than any other power or authority. We need to remember this because if the Bible does remind us of our real battles, they're not against flesh and blood. You know, our battles aren't against people or things around us. That's not our battle. Our battle is in the spiritual realm. That's what the Bible says. That's where the battle is really at, against those principalities of the air and spiritual forces, all right? But we don't have to fear them because, as John reminded us as about God's work and power in our lives, little children, you are from God and overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. Amen? Right? I am not powerless against these forces because of God's working, and I don't have to fear these powers because of God's working in my life. For a believer, it is truly true. Greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. Now, with this ruling power, we also see that Jesus has guiding power. Look at verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills all in all. Now, what these verses remind believers is that God has placed Jesus, yes, over all things, but he's also the head of the church. I don't know about you, but I need this reminder because when there's times when I look at the future of the church, I can have a tendency to look to me as if in the end, I control the future of this church particularly. As a pastor, sometimes I wear that weight and I, and I think the future depends upon me. I have to remind myself that is not true. It's not true. The future of this church depends upon Jesus Christ because he's the head, right? And as long as we remember that and we look to him and in all things, all right, he is leading us individually and then he is leading us corporately as a church. Here's what I know. I don't have to worry about the future because Jesus is in control, right? I I can do that as long as he is the priority in our life. Now, as I've shared all this, I really believe it begs us to wrap up by answering what is the practical significance of what Paul shared here. I've shared a lot this morning, I know, and and I'm sorry, all right? There's so much in just one little chapter. As you consider Paul's prayer for these believers, you should ask this question of yourself. What is the motivation and strength for your life? Your motivation above all should be to know God more fully. See, too often we're looking for our personal accomplishments and achievements for our motivation, However, Paul had his season in life of pursuing personal gain. Not only did he pursue personal gain, he achieved personal gain. However, this is what he said in light of having his life changed by Jesus Christ in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss 
because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might, that I might what? That I might know him and what? The power of his. What Paul wanted now more than anything else was to know God. And so he was motivated to know more of God and to know that power is resurrection in his life. The reality of knowing God more is what Paul said. It is ultimately to, again, know that power of the resurrection. And this actually leads perfectly for one to realize that the strength of your life should be the resurrection power of Jesus that we receive by grace. Paul made this clear in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, recognizing that Christ and his resurrection is the strength of your life is very important because if not, you can work hard in life, even achieve a measure of success, believe it was your own strength that got you to where you are, only to at some point end up where suddenly everything changes so that you realize you are not really as good as you thought. However, when you rely on God, trust his strength, what you will discover is as you trust in him, even in the weakest moments of your life, God can prove himself strong. And when a person makes knowing God the priority of life, you discover a strength and purpose for your life that you never thought possible. Therefore, like Paul, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know that what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Fire above all rule and authority and a power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, as I bow into your presence today, once again, I, I just thank you for your rich word. And Father, today I thank you for Paul's prayer to these believers, a prayer that we need today and that we need to hear. And so I pray in these moments as we have a time of invitation that there would be a desire for folks to know you more. And for some, maybe it's to come to this altar and that they would pray, God, show me more. Give me wisdom. Give me revelation today. Father, help my eyes to be enlightened. Maybe that's the prayer, Father. I don't know, but some need to come and go deeper in knowing you more. There's others here today that truly they walked in here dead, but Father, I want them to walk out alive. And so I pray there'd some who'd come this morning and experience your resurrection power. So Father, as we have this invitation, you again move, you speak. Let your word, word, uh, work be done in our lives, God. Have complete control. Because I know, Father, all power and might is yours. 
You can do far more than we can ever imagine or think. So in this moment, overwhelm us, amaze us, do a great and mighty work in Jesus' name. Amen.